You're listening to the Nerd to Know Media Network. Join us at nerdtoknowmedia.com. Broadcasting from the Blanchestan Center. This is Phoenix FM. The internet is a communications tool used the world over where people can come together to pitch bad movies and share bad. According to the Nerd Index, you should be upside down in a junior high toilet around the clock. This is the Good luck! Tide goes in, tide goes out. Never miss communication. It's over 9,000! My name is Foxy. The balls are in there. I'm your host, Monikin Blue, and today's special guest is a very good friend of mine, writer and theater director, Keanu Calicon. Hello, and thank you for saying I'm special. I really appreciate that. Well, you are special. You took the time out. <laughs> so, Keen, why don't you run us through kind of what it is that you do and, you know, how exactly you got into it? Oh, God, that's going to take more than half an hour. Um, <laughs> In a nutshell. Okay. Uh, my name's Keen O'Callaghan. I run a theater company called Underdog Theatre Productions, and I write and direct theater shows as well as teaching drama and helping out with scripts around Dublin. And how did you get into that then? Uh, complete fluke, more or less. I know that's not the <laughs> kind of most inspiring beginning. Well, I think that but, tends to be the way with, with most creatives. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure everyone has like a weird nonsensey story about how they got into it. And actually, that's why I'm really looking forward to hearing more of these episodes on your new series. But uh, yeah, just kind of stumbled into the drama side of things. I got a decent role in the production of The Crucible when I was uh, 18 and about to leave school. And then like two weeks afterwards, I got an audition for uh, the Bull Alley College in Liberties, And they accepted me in kind of on the audition alone without the leaving start points. So I was like, oh, this is promising. Yeah. And, but I didn't stick with the acting for too long because in college, uh, I was starting to just write little nonsensey scenes for the other students in the class. Like, you know, we'd do a Shakespeare thing. I would write a Shakespeare type scene and write characters to the other actors in the class. And then as a joke, I wrote a play called Waiting for Garda about, um, a real party that we were all at, a post-show party, in which someone whose name I won't mention ended up, I think something to the effect of crashing and stealing a car on the way to get drinks, and we were all kind of held hostage in the house party until they got back by the guards. And no, no matter how good the party is, if you're there under guard of supervision, it just kind of goes flat and awkward. So... <laughs> So as a joke, I wrote a play about that night and cast all the actors who were there like in the roles, just as like a little project. Mm-hmm. And then as luck would have it, or not possibly, uh, our course ran out of funding. So we suddenly weren't graduating. So I grabbed them all and went, hey, let's find a space and do this. 
and that's kind of how, a roundabout way of how I got my first directing gig too. So, so hold on, you wrote this from experience? Uh, yes, I suppose so. I mean, it was kind of the easiest casting job in the world because you literally just got to write the pe- what happened and then cast the people who were there. <laughs> uh, except for the me role. I had to get another actor named Jeff Gibson to play me. But yeah, by and large, it was a very surreal experience because you were kind of making a fictitious version of an incredibly awkward night and kind of giving it a beginning, a middle and end and adding themes to it and stuff. So it was the weirdest introduction to theater making, but it stuck with me and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> I'd never heard that story before. Really? I, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't believe we've known each other this long. I've never told you that story. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I get that, you know, they say, you know, kind of write what you know. I just didn't think that that because that's that's a crazy scenario in itself that's not something I could dream of and that actually happened and became a play yeah I'd love to remount it again someday because I was literally the first thing I did uh we just did it in the space in Temple Bar called The Exchange which sadly isn't there anymore I believe it's now like an Italian bakery teaching school something like that uh oh. But it was a great experience and it was really, really weird because the, it was this art space which was just open to anyone who booked it completely free. So now and again, we'd be rehearsing with like musicians in the room. We'd be rehearsing with other actors. We'd be rehearsing with artists. Uh, one time we got into a fight with a bunch of um, like kind of church choir singers because we had a show that was about to go on and they wouldn't leave. So mm-hmm. it just kind of, it was... Basically, it was a kind of great experience, but it was also a weird learning curve. And anything that could go wrong did happen, even though the show kind of did come together and make a profit. So it was a great learning experience. Yeah, I'd say so. I'm surprised that didn't make it into a play itself, because that's that's a wild scenario. It should do. I, um, I, you know, after this, I may pen something like that because like here I am trying to think of weird nonsense scenarios and all these, I've lived through these things, which I think are normal until I hear people reacting over the air. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, so what are some of your other um, uh, theater works that we might know of? Um, okay, well, I must confess, this is a slightly weird time to be doing this appearance because the underdog has actually been on a little hibernation since my wonderful daughter Primrose was born. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most recent stuff I've done is uh, School for Dinosaurs, kids' show uh, in Smock Alley, which we will bring back as soon as Prim's of an age where she doesn't kind of need you know, 24-hour supervision to not end up in a fireplace or something like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was actually, that was a great fun one. That um, had Susan Barrett and Stephen Gorman, Andrea Bulger, uh, loads of really talented people working on it. I believe you actually kind of worked on it to some degree as well. I did, I did a little bit, yeah. And actually, for those of you who haven't seen School for Dinosaurs, you know, if and when it does come back, I definitely recommend it because it's a lot of fun. We tracked down a recording of it that my sister made. We may put it up on the Facebook page over the next few weeks. Uh, Jessica Lean, she was in this as well. She played the teacher. We, there was a lot of talent in that show that uh, deserves credit. Way too much, actually. Like, there's almost not enough room for all of the talented people we dragged in. Like your pal, uh, Bethany, uh, mm-hmm. Bethany Williams. I, it wouldn't surprise me if she pops up on this show before too long. 
Oh yeah, uh, I'd love to have her at some point. Yeah, like she did us a banner, like Leanne Scanlon and uh, Eker, they did the costumes. Uh, like there was a lot of talent on that one and it was just great fun to kind of have these dinosaur costumes and kind of go into rehearsals and go, right, what can we do today then? And then just kind of <laughs> hammer a shape onto it near the end. Give me your best T-Rex. <laughs> but that was just it because I... Uh, this this was like my third or fourth show in Smock Alley, and I deliberately hired on actors I'd worked with before, to for the most part, and creatives like yourself. So I kind of knew that I'd be able to write empty spaces in the script where it says Matt's lesson, and just write Stephen does something funny, and <laughs> and he would I, deliver. I trusted that it would happen, yeah. like you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, re- I remember there was a particular scene with a ukulele. Yes, that um, on, was it, yes. On the night, and it didn't, it didn't quite go to plan. I think there was a problem with the tuning or something, but he just made it work. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was fabulous. <laughs> if, yeah, if you ever have a chance to hire any of those actors, Stephen Gorman, Susan Barrett, Andrea Bulger, or Jessica Lean do, because they are absolute gems, and they will bring you seven ideas when you only ask for two so like they're absolute pros i think jess is in the uk now uh but uh yeah that was kind of the most recent one i've also been doing work for dit drama society i think it's called tud now i think they kind of all conglomerated or something Mm -hmm. Uh, before the lockdown happened i was helping them develop a very wonderful and strange production of Midsummer Night's Dream, which had lots of 70s music and lots of psychedelic stuff in it. So I really hope that kind of comes back in some shape or form. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I suppose before that, most of my work was with Smock Alley and with the new theatre. For the new theatre, I had the pleasure of directing both The Collector, um, which was written by Daniel Wade, who is an incredibly talented poet. And if you're on Facebook, you should definitely check out his stuff. Oh, yeah. And Daniel's, Daniel's fantastic. We actually have him lined up for a future episode. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that he has another play in the works and I haven't been able to get involved as much as I should just because of baby commitments. But when you hear about his next script... Uh, which he's written with the wonderful Justin McCann. Do check it out because it is top notch. Like I think you actually did a read through for it, didn't you? Oh yes, I think I did. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to give anything away just yet. I'll. I'll let if Daniel wants to talk about that, we can. We can have a chat. Yeah, of course, um, of course. But and, it, it's uh, good stuff. Yes, like and it's and he's and if you get a chance to work with him, he's brilliant too. I feel like I'm on to plug everyone else, but that is just kind of <laughs> the nature of the industry. Uh, and I also have done shows like uh, Absolute Beginners uh, for Diane Crotty and um, Ashling Seven, which was my own. That was for the now tragically gone theatre upstairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, also a little weird one that I'm not sure if anyone remembers, but I'd like to throw it out, Tingo by myself and Jesse Doyle, which was kind of like um, a weird Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderlandy thing where we let our imaginations go weird places and there were keyboard trees and there was lots of Ooh. brilliant music um, and lots and lots of, re- like they were singing serial songs, like songs from like breakfast ads, like to disco music. And it, it went weird places. I've lots of fond memories of that one. Well, I, th- I think weird is good. <laughs> I mean, we're we're creatives, you know. If we're not going weird, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of me. I've kind of 
been doing kind of mostly directing and facilitating and writing for the past couple of years under the underdog logo but where i can because the nature of it is collaborative i've been trying my best to help out with other people's scripts and even just something as small as putting a director in touch with a writer and try and kind of get as many projects going as I can. Because that's what Underdog started as. It was just sort of a nice little space where you could hook up actors with directors and writers with producers and all that kind of stuff and see if anything happens. It's fantastic. And you mentioned that you, you're also a drama teacher. Yes. Um, I have the privilege of working with Drama Beans out in Tala, uh, where we do... Uh, that's run by Janine Nagel and I believe your friend Kate Hennessy she works for them too mm-hmm. yeah um, and we work with young kids kind of from the age young as four up to as old as 16 there and we do lots of great work like kind of just developing new things and developing original kind of songs and games and all that kind of stuff and with the teenagers we do entire projects like sometimes we write scripts sometimes we write films so it's a wonderful little gig. And if you've got kids, like Drama Beans is definitely the way to go because Janine, who runs it, she is incredibly creative and she's always trying to think of a new angle or a new project to tackle. At the moment, we're trying to find out the best way of like doing drama classes online safely. Mm-hmm. So that might be coming out in the next two or three weeks. But yeah, it's an absolute blast going out to those kids in Tala. Like... Uh, once a week. I've actually brought them up on the uh, Nerd to Know podcast before because we've had a bit of a dialogue going where uh, Dara couldn't get into this game Fortnite and mm-hmm. I went to the kids and went, I've got this friend who can't like get into Fortnite. Can you help him? And one girl went, did he not just hit the A button? Like, <laughs> and we went back and forth over the course of a few weeks. So yeah, those kids are excellent. And if you're a theater person, I encourage you, be it aspiring or in the game for a few years, I fully encourage you to try and teach one drama lesson because it really helps bring you back to the basics of what theater and drama is, which is just some people in a room creating things together in a positive environment and seeing what comes out of it. I think, I'm not sure if you've kind of run into this thing before with because you're in like lots and lots of industries, aren't you, Katie? <laughs> Too many to name. Too <laughs> many. here all day. <laughs> well, uh, in any one of those, I won't name names because I don't want to presume, but I'm sure you've been in a position where maybe you've just worked at so many festivals or worked so long at a certain gig that you almost don't see the simplicity and the joy of work doing a thing you love, sometimes for money, sometimes for exposure, sometimes for connecting, whatever. But I think it's really good to have something that grounds you like that in your life and to have the opportunity to come up with new games every week and see how kids react to it because it'll surprise you. Like it's, I really think that you should go back to basics and just share your joy of it with other people as much as possible because... I mean, you know it yourself. There'll be tough times when you may not have a gig for a long time or you may have a gig, but it's kind of not a fun gig or whatever. So it's, yeah, Drama Beans has definitely kept me on the straight and narrow as far as the theatre thing for a long, long time. And I've really enjoyed the opportunity to work with them. Oh, that's so lovely. And if, you know, if you don't mind me asking, how has working with Drama Beans and, and 
teaching in general has has that impacted your writing or directing or anything like that in in other avenues of work sometimes i mean we mentioned the dinosaur one earlier like uh now and again i'd kind of float ideas like i'm doing this dinosaur thing what are your favorite dinosaurs or i'm doing a play set in a forest like what are the weirdest things you've run into in a forest and the thing I love about working with uh, kids is, you know how when you're, and I don't mean this as a, like a diss or anything. I mean this with sincere awe. Like, mm-hmm. you know how adults, when they go to say something, there's like this little customs thing in their head where you kind of go, should I say that? No, because then that might upset him and he'll say it to someone else. I'm just going to say something else. Kids don't have that. Yeah, they've no the nicest, filter. <laughs> the ni- that's a filter. The nicest kids in the world are still as honest as they come and i find that genuinely refreshing because i don't have a head for like the subtleties and the language of networking and all that kind of stuff so if i bring in some actors from a thing i'm working on and i put a few kids in front of it and i go oh is that working and they were like i don't get it it was like right they don't get it this needs fixing uh because like um yeah i think maybe it's also the kind of the recent parenthood but kids do ground you. I think you do kind of get notions of what you do and all that kind of stuff. Like working with kids is a great experience and there are tough days. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, I'm genuinely like, uh, humbled that, uh, drama beans and I've worked with play act as well. They're wonderful, but like that, uh, these wonderful groups trust me to just be creative. And the kids also meet me halfway Mm-hmm. and kind of get in on the play and it's been a wonderful experience and i honestly couldn't say if how much it's affected the output i do but it has helped me keep my sense of play and i bring that sense of play to the adults i work with like uh, i also work with now and again with uh, adult groups in jobstown uh, out in Ankasan. and i think that sense of play translates to any age group so i think it's honestly I, I think it's vital, really. I think you need to be reminded that it's supposed to be fun, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's if it's not fun, why are you doing it? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think you do need a reminder now and again. And I'm really looking forward to hearing who else. You're, I know you've got to have Daniel on the show, but like, I'm really looking forward to seeing who treats what they do as play, who treats it as very serious work. And all those perspectives are valid. But for me, I think you need to... like touch base with the fact that you get to do silly things and you get paid for it sometimes it's not perfect <laughs> but it is nice and you've got to make peace with that you know yeah yeah it's not all just doing it for the exposure uh well not to like undermine your premise but yeah <laughs> <laughs> well no i mean that that was the, the whole point in in doing the show is that you know we're, we're taking back the the exposure part and actually trying to make it work for us yes 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 exactly and like i mean I'm sure that like over the coming episodes that we will get into like maybe some heavier sides of the industry, but like, yeah, we all got to rely on each other and like kind of keep everyone focused on like how lucky we are to collaborate with all these wonderful people. And it costs nothing to say to someone, Hey, that guy, Michael with the balloons, he's brilliant. Or, uh, or Bethany with her art, go check her out. It only takes a second of your life and it might mean the world to them, you know? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So 
just on that note, what are some other things you do besides, because I know you said you're a writer. Is it just plays or do you write other things? Um, it's mostly plays now. I'm lucky enough to be writing for Geek Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. They let me do uh, kind of weekly essays and that kind of stuff. I think probably the most popular one would be the Nerding with Children because I get to just write lists of things Prim did that week. Um, like, you know, kind of what music she's dancing to or what Marvel movies she likes. Um, aside from that, like, I think the writing would mostly be for theater, but given the time, I'd love to try and crack into novel writing. But I think just uh, because, like, I've got loads of friends who do it who I'm immensely, like, proud of, like Deirdre Sullivan and kind of, and Dave Rudden and all these wonderful people. Like, but I just... Like, I mean, I won't name names, but someone will have to get up at five in the morning to write to seven to then go to work to all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I have not figured out how to do that just yet, <laughs> but it's something I'd love to get into because like um, with theater writing, you're limited by your imagination, but also by resources to some degree. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to kind of take some of the wilder concepts like the dinosaurs and that kind of stuff. And just like get into prose and see if there's an audience for it, you know. Although having said that, it's hard to kind of, uh, there is something really exhilarating about the instant feedback of theater. Mm -hmm. Like you could just come up with an idea on the Monday, bring over two or three friends by the Friday, and suddenly you've got the guts of a working show. And I just get a kick off that. If anything, I did too many shows too soon when I started out. I should have just like picked a good one and paced myself, but I was doing loads and loads of things. Just so, excited. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, once you get, I think everyone goes to that phase. You just kind of take on everything because you just want to see what happens. And that's a vital part of the process, you know? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm notorious for that. I just, I want to do it all and then you burn out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that is the burnout thing. A wonderful friend of mine, Sinead O'Brien, she has this thing called Cloud Tardis Time where she'll do two or three projects back to back and then just, go hide in her room for a week. I'm not sure if she still does that, but it's a wonderful habit. Like, you know, you just push yourself as far as you can. You take your burnout, you go into a tent with some sweets and then you come back out ready to go again. Like, cause I'm sure like burnout is a thing in the industry because like it's, I think arts stuff is always going to be a gig economy and it's very easy to kind of overtax yourself out of that fear of not getting another gig, you know? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like, do you find that yourself? I mean, you have uh, kind of got your fingers in lots of pies creatively as far as kind of all this goes. Oh, completely. Yeah. No, I I jump on as many gigs as I can get because, you know, you don't know when you're going to get another one. Mm. Um, And that that was one of the things about the lockdown was that I had so much, and I'm sure everybody else did as well. They probably had so much lined up for the year and then they just saw it all kind of fall apart overnight. Um, well, I mean, that's just it. Like, I mean, like I was in the middle of, uh, like this mentioned earlier, the TUD gig, uh, when this all started going down and like, that's a college thing. I, I don't like, I mean, I don't want to kind of like name names or anything, but I don't know what way that gig's going to go. Is it coming back? Is, am I still getting paid? It's going to be no one's fault if it doesn't, but it's still like, you can't really, the drama lessons have shut down. Like that's, that's money that we're losing every week. I've got a family like, so if I think the 
artist industry has been hit very hard for this in ways that even now aren't yet apparent. And not just the arts. Like I was interviewing Oshin Wallace like on my own podcast, The Game Corner, this week. And all of his work is like activity stuff, axe throwing, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Things that can't be done from home, you know. So I think yeah. I think in a weird way, we won't know what we've lost until this is all blown over, by which point it may be too late. But at least we can be mindful of it now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And on that ominous note... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Please don't end there. (laughs) No, no, no. It's okay. We've still got some time. Okay. (laughs) I just thought I'd bring it back up. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer on, like, the first episode, like... (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's okay. Don't worry. We can go over a bit. Um, No, I was was just going to ask you for... For those at home who are listening and are interested in maybe starting to get into maybe writing or directing or some kind of theater or drama, do you have any advice for them? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I have run like kind of uh, workshops and seminars on this before for Liberties and the TUD, but um, I would say the, the thing I always go to, which I would write on my imaginary whiteboard if I had one, <laughs> is uh, when you're approaching writing something, try and write the thing you always want to see, but never get to. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds like a bit unhelpful at the start, but what it does is is that uh, start what you love. You love horror movies, you love action, you love this, you love that. Start there, start with what you know. But more often than not, if you can just find something that you've always wanted to see, be it, I don't know, vampires in an action movie set on a bridge whatever not only are you starting from a point of love but you are also starting guaranteed with an idea that doesn't exist before because as soon as you start writing you're going to become self-aware and go oh no that's a bit this oh no that's a bit that don't mind it your first draft is always nonsense so just challenge yourself to keep pushing on through uh dave rudden who i mentioned earlier he has a wonderful approach where he, if it's a book, he sets himself like five pages a day and he has to hit that deadline no matter what. And then he'll only review it once it's all together. Don't focus on the content of what you're writing. Just focus on getting that first draft done because your first draft is going to have a lot of wobbly bits in it. But once it's done, you'll have a better idea of what it is you're trying to make in the first place. And it's easier to kind of rewrite and change things than it is to kind of do half of the panic, give up and then start over. Now, I preach about it and I practice, but still I found that that's a lovely way of tricking yourself over the sort of, uh, someone that used to go out with use the term blank page trauma. <laughs> uh, I think she was trying to say writer's block, but actually I think it's incredibly appropriate because you do start writing and your hands go, oh no. So that's, that's, those are a couple of little cheat things I use to help get over that initial kind of fear hurdle like I I think that's great advice and I think it goes for anyone really because no matter what industry you work in it's getting started is always the hardest thing Mm. and if you can get over that you just push through it keep going even if it's nonsense even if you're gonna throw it away just do it anyway yeah I mean like and there's something to I think Maybe it's tying in the professional identity to the creative self that obviously you and I've done at this point. But I think eventually you've kind of a producer creeps into your brain and goes, 
There's a lot of things like this. You probably shouldn't be doing this. doesn't matter. Just finish it. You may finish a book or a script that you end up not wanting to use, but there might be like a really good joke in there that you like. And you can just take that joke onto the next thing. Like, I think we need to, ha- to rewire our brains so that that's like, this isn't good, throw it out, start a different thing. And more like, okay, it's like practicing piano. It's, this is all muscle memory. Even if I don't use this writing thing, I'm still becoming better for having done it. And then the next thing will be stronger. Yeah, I think uh, we, I, I actually went to college for um, music. And w- so we used to do songwriting. And one of the strongest pieces of advice I was probably ever given was that if you're struggling with something, walk away from it um, and come back to it, you know, maybe in a week, maybe a month or six months or whatever, and try again, just because that might not be what you're writing right now. Mm. So, you know, a lot of the time it should be just do what you feel right now and don't necessarily try to write the thing you think you should be writing because that's not where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of trust your creative instincts over like what the little producer in your brain says. Like that's, I mean, I know he's not the most popular guy for valid (laughs) reasons, but Graham Linehan has a lovely approach, which is he writes something, he puts it in a shelf or like a shoebox or whatever for eight weeks, just long enough to forget about it. And then he reads it again. And I think there's something to that, like get far enough away that you're detached from it, come back to it and go, oh, this ain't so bad. I like that thing I used to hate. And then pick up from there. Like, uh, do we have enough time like, to go into another thing? Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, my kind of approach to scripts is I'll do a draft one, which is usually nonsense, but it's I put in literally everything I want, regardless of budget, regardless of limitations, whatever. That's how we ended up with dinosaurs. Um, and then I put it away for a month or two. I talk to other people about it, about the concepts, and I start kind of getting creatives involved. Then I do a second draft when I've left it long enough that I've kind of forgotten about it, fix up things, like almost treat it like it was a script that someone else wrote that I'm helping out someone else out with. Then I send it on to my friends for appraisal because it feels less nervous because it doesn't feel like it's mine. And then they give me notes. I do a third draft with their notes. And aside from some meddling in the process of making it that's usually what i stick with because i've known people who've done 20 21 drafts 22 and they get so far away from where they started that they don't even know what it is they're trying to make anymore it's kind of like if you hit a point with a rubik's cube where you're just moving it for the sake of moving it mm-hmm. and you may be undoing something really good that you had earlier on you know yeah at that point are you are you overworking it are you watering it down yeah, exactly. Like, I think, I think in a weird way, other people wouldn't agree. I know that rule doesn't work for novelists where it's like only one hand or like maybe two of you, including editor, is involved with it. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to theater and like the odd, like tiny bits of film I've helped out on here and there, generally I think, no, you have a cutoff point for your brainstorming process. Know it's coming and make your peace with it. Like, and then if it's not good, sure, do a better script next time, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Take what you've learned and, and apply that to the next one. Exactly. Yeah. Because otherwise you might kind of, you know, I hate to sound like, the, like over invest in it. Like I've seen plays where it's clear that like, obviously there should be honesty in it, but it almost feels uncomfortable. Like especially plays about breakups and stuff where it's like, this is too raw. This is so, you should have drafted this a little more. So it became more of like 
a work of fiction than you using this as your therapy space. I think mm-hmm. obviously there should be truth in it, but I think it has to transcend into something else. And I know I that's quite hypocritical considering I opened with the Garda story, but still. <laughs> well, but I, still, no, I, yeah. I, I think, yeah, no, you have a point. It has to be somewhat universal. The audience has to be able to relate. Yes, yes. I think you have to make, even if it's based on a real, like, I mean, you've seen all those, like, based on a true story films. You have to take it and put a structure on it that makes it into something with a beginning, middle, and end. And you have to really put your own stamp on it. And you also need to learn when to kind of walk away from it, you know? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So just before we go, Keen, is there anything that you would like to plug um, or let people know about? Um, well, I suppose if you're, I mean, you're already here, but uh, Nerd to Know Media, uh, I've got a new show called The Game Corner going. Uh, also check out my theater page, Underdog Theater Productions. It's on Facebook. And I also write regularly for Geek Ireland. So check them out if you're looking for some fun, nerdy content. There's been loads of it since everyone's stuck in their homes. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Fantastic. And for anyone listening, if you want to keep up to date with Keen, we will post links to his social media and Instagram and, and all of that stuff as well, um, just so that you can keep up to date. Um, Keen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be your first special guest. Oh, me too. <laughs> you have no idea how much it means. Okay, well then, thank you very much for having me on, and you have a lovely day now. I'm your host, Mannequin Blue, and today's special guest is award-winning balloon artist and magician, John Reed. Hello. Hello, how are you? I am fantastic. How are you? I am hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> White-knuckled and screaming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're making the most of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By any yeah. means necessary. It's the best we can do, right? Yeah. So, John, you are our, I think you're our first international guest, which is amazing because we're growing. Yay. Yes. You are um, growing like a fungus. <laughs> Just sticks to everything. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? So, as you mentioned, I'm a magician and a balloon artist. I started doing magic when I was a little kid. And I was very introverted about it. I didn't show anyone until I got to college. And when I got to college, somebody said, hey, would you do a party for my nephew? And I went, no, I really don't. I don't do parties. And they were like, oh, it's only going to be eight kids. I was like, ah, I really don't do parties. And they were like, I'll give you $50. I was like, you want me to get a rabbit? I can buy a rabbit. You know, I was, I was in. And the first show was a disaster. But people kept hiring me. And I went back more and more and more. And I saw somebody making balloons and I picked that up because somebody said, well, the other guy would make balloons. What will give you more money if you make balloons? And I got better at the balloons and I got better at the magic. And I realized that I was having more fun making more money than my parents partying on the weekends. So I should probably just keep doing this. And then it, and it snowballed. And here I am today making balloons and doing magic for a living. I put together a mission statement about six years ago to create 10 million smiles. So what better way than to not just perform magic and make balloons, but to also teach it. So that has become part of my passion project is to teach kids and young people and adults, but mostly young people, give them not just an artistic skill, but social skills with confidence and teach them how to have conversations with people and engage people and give them a tool. It's, you know, some people say it's a crutch to give, you know, to use a magic trick or making balloons to start a conversation, but it's a tool. And as long as you respect the tool and use the tool properly, you can create amazing things and incredible connections. Yeah, definitely. 
And just because you're one of the more, I suppose, intricate balloon artists that I've seen, because, you know, some people, they do magic and balloons and then they do the basics, but you don't mm -hmm. do that. So how did, yeah. how did you <laughs> expand that? So my granny, who is the most incredible person I've ever met, told me once when I was very young, she's like, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you collect cans or <laughs> I don't want to cuss, but she said shovel stuff <laughs> for a living. She goes, whatever it is, if you collect cans, it should be the biggest pile of cans. If you're going to, you know, shovel garbage, you better do it more efficiently and effectively than anybody else. Whatever you do, be the best at it. And the joke is always, well, I wish she was more specific. She was probably hoping for a doctor or a lawyer, but I did. And I, I, every time I do anything in the back of my head, it's the question is, will this make Granny proud? Will she go, yeah, you're doing a good job. And having that sort of as the bar, because, you know, you set your own bar. That's one thing. If you have somebody else is the bar, it changes the dynamic. Now it's not just, I'm not settling when I get tired because I go, uh, let's do a little bit better. Let's go, let's go a little bit further for Granny. That's awesome. Normally you hear people say, you know, I have to be better than everyone else, but it's really nice to hear you say, I have to be the best for my granny. <laughs> well, and, and really that's what it kind of comes down to is a friend of mine, Kennedy, he's actually a UK magician and mentalist. He said, I, I don't want to be better than anybody else. I just want to be less crap than I was yesterday. And that's really like, that's what it comes down to, but setting the bar for somebody else I want to be less crap, not just for myself, but to make that person proud. That's, you know, that's helped me. And I'm not saying that's the right way to do it. I'm just saying for me, it made it a lot harder for me to settle. Yeah, it kind of, you found something that worked for you and you ran with it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So how did you get into then all of the, the, the bigger, grander balloon sculptures? So I worked in a magic shop and you know, I learned how to make a dog, a sword, a flower, and 137 animals that looked like a dog, a sword, or a flower. And one day, this guy walks in, and he made Daffy Duck out of balloons. And I thought, holy cow, this is incredible. And as he's having a conversation with the manager in the store, I'm like, oh, I'll sneak to my car, I'll get my balloons, I'll come back in, and I'll, and I'll redesign what he just did. You know, I'll, I'll ask him to show me. And by the time I had gotten back in, because I went out the back door, he had left out the front, and he was gone. So I went home and I tried to reverse engineer it. And after, you know, 150 balloons going through an entire bag, I had figured out how to make Daffy Duck. He came back maybe about a month or so later, bought another bag of balloons. And I said, hey, you changed my life. I'm making Daffy Duck now. And he's like, oh, really? Yeah. And I showed him and he goes, that's great. That's not at all what I did. Yours is actually a little bit more efficient. This is what I do. I went, oh, that's cool. And then we traded a couple of designs. I showed him one that I had come up with. He showed me something that he had come up with. And that started the, the path because I would go to a party and I was doing, you know, my magic show. And at the end, as like a giveaway, I hate to say it was a giveaway, but it was like, it was a tag on. I started making these balloons and then people started asking for things that I didn't know how to make. And I remember a kid, his name was Trevor. And this is going back almost 20 years. He said, I want Bugs Bunny. I'm like, I don't know how to make Bugs Bunny. And he goes, why not? And I went, you know, you're right. I guess I've never tried. So I tried to make Bugs Bunny and it looked all right. And then I went home and I said, I'm going to keep going with that. Now it was a challenge. What would you like? The kid would say something. If I didn't know what it was, I would try to steer him towards something else. But if I did know what it was and I knew how, what it looked like, I would try to make it. And that became sort of part of the fun for me because it didn't matter if I nailed Bugs Bunny. 
out of balloons. It was the only Bugs Bunny this kid had ever seen. So it was by default the best. And that feeling, because he didn't know what it was supposed to look like. So he was thrilled. And that's, that's sort of, that's fun for me. So every once in a while I'll put on Facebook, I'll say, I'm having a creative day. Does anybody have anything they want me to make? And people will come up with the most absurd things. And I try. And the responses I get, the feedback I get when people go, oh my gosh, I can't believe you actually did it. One, like you tried, but two, that it's successful. And in my mind, I'm going, ugh, no, this thing came out terrible. Wait till I do go around two. It'll be much better. And that's sort of how I built on it. But that's always the way. Like I say this every time, you know, people do something amazing and everyone goes, oh my God, that's amazing. How did you do it? And they go, no, it's awful. It's terrible. I can do it so much better. Like you're always right. going to be your worst critic. Correct. And there's something good about that because it just makes us, you know, want to be better. But at the same time, it's just every once in a while, I see a piece that I'm very happy with and I go, man, I kind of nailed it. And I remember when I was, I have a the world record. I made the world's largest balloon sculpture by a single person. It was a 50 foot tall robot. And I made it out in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the whole time I was doing it, I was so focused on, you know, finishing that I wasn't really enjoying the process. And I remember listening to Neil Gaiman talk about the best advice he had ever gotten that he didn't take. And it was from Stephen King. And he said, you know, this is really great what you're doing. You should enjoy it. And I remembered like hearing that statement and I went, oh, I need to enjoy this. So for the last day while everybody was taking pictures, I just kind of like, I sat back and I soaked it all in. I, I just went, man, I, I did a cool thing. And I, I didn't sit for too long enjoying it, but that moment of just being like, oh, I did this thing. I kind of nailed what I, I wanted to do. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to let people tell me what they think. And I'm not going to pick myself apart. And yeah, I know there's things in there that could have been better, but no, it's, you know, it's a good feeling to know that when you get something right, to enjoy it. And as artists, I think a lot of us are way, way too critical. But every once in a while when you go, all right, that's, that's a nine out of 10. I can sit back. I can recognize that that really rocks and enjoy the moment. Oh, I, I love that just you're, even when you're enjoying it, you're still a critic, you know, you're still like, well, it's a yeah. nine out of 10. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. And that's the thing. I mean, I think if you're a true artist, you never want to admit that it's a 10 out of 10. Even if, you know, even if everybody's like, this is the greatest thing ever, you go, yeah, wait till next time, you know, but when you get the nine out of 10, enjoy it. You can worry about the next time tomorrow, right? <laughs> you know, enjoy, enjoy the finished product for what it is and realize that as long as, you know, tomorrow you try to be, as Kennedy says, a little less crap than you were yesterday or today, you're on the right track. Yeah, 100%. And just because you started out, you know, with the standard balloons, how did that translate then into sculptures that are so big? Well, I went to a balloon convention called Twist and Shout, and I had seen people doing these much larger sculptures. And I went, oh, man, that's great. I met a gentleman at the time. He was, I think he was like 13, Dustin Query. And this kid was next level at 13. He was winning competitions against adults, doing massive sculptures, and then like pretty much throwing them aside. He was like, nah, I'll figure something else out. And I'm like, you know what? We, we should get together. We should hang out. We should do something at some point. And at one point I was going to Gettysburg where he lives for a DeLorean convention, the car from Back to the Future. And I said, hey, I'm gonna be in your neck of the woods. What do you think about making a DeLorean, maybe like four feet, you know, like the Back to the Future one. He's like, actually, it's probably easier just to make it full-sized. And in my mind, I went, all right, kid, whatever you say. <laughs> so we spent 
you know, 14 hours over the course of two days, weaving and twisting and making a DeLorean from Back to the Future. And at the time, it was the largest sculpture that I had made. And I went, oh, this is, this goes beyond making dogs and swords for kids. It doesn't matter that it took 14 hours because people liked watching the process. And it occurred to me that doing these larger sculptures, there's a different type of engagement with the what, what I would call the audience. It's not a one-on-one -on -one where I'm going to make you this thing, kid, and you to keep it. It's, it's akin to glass blowing or, you know, stone carving, where people are just as impressed and amazed by the process as they are with the finished product. So I thought, all right, well, now I want to do more of these big things. So I was volunteering to do whatever sculptures I could for whatever events I could. The deal was, though, I wanted it to be big. And a lot of places were like, yeah, sure, kid, whatever you want. And one thing led to another. And I started making, you know, full-sized people. And there was a gentleman out of the Boston area. He's the guy who ran Twist and Shout with his wife, Patty. His name was Royal Sorrell. And he was known for doing these bigger sculptures, these larger-than-life sculptures. And I just started studying his work and using his, you know, bases for the type of sculpture. He passed a few years ago. He had a very elegantly simple style where he wasn't worried about every minute detail. There was a good base, and then he would put the details on top. And I sort of go with that with most of my sculptures. I make a good solid base, and then the details, the, you know, the details really make it, I think. That's sort of been my design aesthetic you know, going forward. And everybody, I, I make balloon dresses was a thing that kind of got me a little bit of notoriety. And there are so many artists out there like the dresses that you do are incredible. And I always say that I'm like, I'm, I'm the, you know, the old Navy slash gap of balloon dresses. My dresses work. They're quickly made. They're efficient. They hopefully are flattering, but they're not terribly intricate or detailed. You know, I want them to be just as much function as fashion. And I want people to be comfortable wearing them. And I don't want to spend 40 hours making them. So, like I said, there's something elegantly simple about making a really nice base, adding a few details, and letting the work speak for itself, and letting the audience or the observer kind of fill in what they think about it and how they feel about it. I mean, I think that's the best part about art is what somebody else takes away from it. Yeah, and that was actually something that I wanted to touch on as well, just because mm -hmm. for anyone who follows, you know, my work outside of the show, they'll know that I... I'm kind of becoming known for these crazy balloon dresses, but probably they what so they cool. don't know <laughs> is that you're the one who taught me how to do that. Yeah, it was an accident. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, I just mean, I think I, I very much have that mindset as well when building a dress is that build a strong, solid base <laughs> and then, you know, add all the crazy stuff on top of that. So when you break my dresses down, you take off all the frills and the different colors and everything. It is in essence, your process. Yeah, it was, my process was an accident. I was not the first person to figure out making balloon dresses. In fact, there were lots more and there are people who are far better, but my goddaughter fell and split her lip open on the playground while I was visiting in Colorado. And she was so sad. And I was like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta make a balloon that's gonna make this kid smile. Cause she, oh, I'm not pretty anymore. I'm never gonna smile again. I was like, you know, like, like heck you're not gonna smile kiddo. Not on my watch. So I quickly made this little dress out of balloons for her. And we were at a conference. It was a magic convention. And I told her mom, I'm like, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go get her bathing suit, pop it on her. I made something to make her smile. So her mom went and got her 
you know, got her dressed up to go to the pool and she thought she was going to the pool. And when she came in and saw the dress on the bed, she's like, oh, that's amazing. Why doesn't the person have a head or arms or legs? And I went, that's because it's your arms, head and legs. And she went, oh, I can wear it. Yeah. So she put her arms up and whoop, put it on her. And she walked around that convention for hours with a smile on her face that you couldn't take away with a sandblaster. And I thought, you know what? I not only got to watch this kid's demeanor totally change, there was not a person in that hotel that didn't start beaming and laughing and smiling as she walked by. And I went, all right, I'm probably going to have to learn how to do this for like real sized people. Cause you know, at the time she was four and then, you know, and again, once you make something like that, all of a sudden more people want to see more stuff like that. And if that doesn't keep you doing what you're doing, I don't know what will. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, 10 million smiles and, and I, I, I keep losing count, so I have to keep starting over, which I don't think is a bad thing. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> so just to kind of focus on the dresses a little bit more, because I know mm -hmm. you've got all sorts of cool stories, but you've made some for some somewhat famous people as well. Yeah, I have. I had made one for Amanda Palmer, the musician from the Dresden Dolls. She's also married to Neil Gaiman. He was there when I made it. It was a fluke. She was doing her Kickstarter, which she raised, I think it was like $1.2 million to create this new album and this, this concert tour and everything else. And I showed up at the, the block party that she was throwing in Brooklyn and I made a dress and they put it on her and then they popped it off of her. And the, again, it kind of snowballed. I made one at the White House when President Obama was in the office and I put one on my assistant at the time and she wore it. She was voted the best dressed attendee by the Associated Press pool. And, you know, Michelle and Barack Obama were floored by it. That was kind of cool. I've made, I've made dresses for, you know, I call them like regional celebrities, local celebrities in the New York area that nobody outside of New York would know. And ultimately outside of certain industries probably wouldn't know, but it's been a lot of fun. It definitely gets people talking about you, but it, I always ask the, the women after I put them in the dress, like, what was it like? How did it feel? Did you have fun? Their answers are always some variation of, it made me feel like when you're a little kid and you want to grow up and be a princess, it made me feel like that, which is kind of a neat sentiment because they are immediately taken back to a childhood mindset, but it's what they imagined as a kid and it kind of worked. So you can, you can have that nostalgic feeling, but sort of also spin high art into it, which is kind of, that's for me, that's kind of cool. I'm, I'm a sentimental guy. So when, when somebody says, oh, when I was a kid, immediately I'm like, I'm in okay, we've done, we've hit an emotional chord. And I think that's what art is, whether it's happiness, sadness, love, hate, you know, art is supposed to make you feel some form of emotion. And when you feel that kind of emotion, you know, again, that's a nine out of 10. <laughs> that's what I want. <laughs> I give it a perfect nine out of 10 score. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I can, I can 100% attest to that feeling of being in a balloon dress. It's like, the best feeling if a little bit hot and sticky and you know yeah. kind of awkward to move in but you're just having right. the best time <laughs> you're definitely not going to rob a bank quietly in, in a balloon dress you're squeaking and creaking and as you walk around but other than the noise it's very cool <laughs> it's like the best i recommend it to everyone everyone and especially people who make dresses they should have to wear them <laughs> yeah you know marie marie datto custom balloon dresses she has been on my case she's like I gotta make you a balloon dress one day and I'm like yeah one day I'll get in one and, and if I do it's gonna be 
you know, it'll probably have to be her. Yeah, I really benefit. I want it to be something that we can say, okay, yeah, I did that. And it was, hopefully it was good exposure. I right. mean, hopefully the bigger we get, the better exposure it'll be. But I wanted it to be one of those things where it was to benefit the artists that come on the show. And I, so. I think it really does. Like I said, I, I, I happen to know some of the artists that you've had on because, you know, we're friends and I see the way you support them. But there are a handful of artists that I never heard of and I never would have heard of had they not been on the show. And I think that's really great in, in giving everybody a platform to reach out. And like I said, I hope it goes more and more international and I will do my part to help on uh, this side of the, the ocean. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And it's, it's, it's a pleasure finally having more international people and especially yourself because you've been in the industry so long. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> I didn't mean really, that. Really, really old. <laughs> oh man, it's been great. And I'm, I'm super honored to be part of the program. I, I've been, I'm a fan. So <laughs> to, to be invited on was super exciting. And I can't wait to have somebody interview you on your own show. I am, I'm going to be one of the people that is fighting that fight to get somebody to interview you. I know you're doing it for other artists, but I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear the interview with you one day. <laughs> you know, more and more people are pushing for that. And I actually have yeah. to, I need to dig out the link because there was, so the very first episode of any podcast I did was mm -hmm. for Nerd to Know Media. It was their show, Nerd to Know Basis. And they actually, they asked me, would I come on an interview? And then from there, it just ended up, I got more and more involved with the network. So I must dig out that link and just in the meantime, just say, okay, if you want to hear about me, here's that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, re I remember that one and it was great. And I've, uh, you know, again, I'm a fan, so I'm a supporter. So I'm going to fight the good fight to have you on your own show. <laughs> All right. Don't start any petitions or anything. I don't know if yeah. I can handle the pressure. <laughs> Too much pressure. Yeah. But just because I'm keeping, keeping an eye on time, is there anything <laughs> that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? Go out every day and try to make somebody smile. That's something that I do. And I, I encourage other people to go out and do it. Having that attitude of gratitude is great. Having an attitude of trying to, in whatever small, quirky, seemingly insignificant way you think you can try to make somebody smile. And I think the world will be a better place. That has been my mission is to make people smile, learn a bad joke. When I say a bad joke, I don't mean a dirty joke. I mean like learn a dad joke and just have that in your pocket. Put googly eyes on salt shakers in a diner to make somebody smile. Write a, a note on a post-it and leave it anywhere random for someone. And it doesn't have to be somebody super close or super significant in your life. Just leave a post that says, hey, you're awesome every day try to do something to make someone smile or laugh and you will make the world a better place for certain yes absolutely and on that wholesome note it has been an absolute pleasure to finally have you on the show it has been awesome to be here i'm so excited i can't wait <laughs> i can't wait to hear myself back <laughs> i can't well i can't wait to because this is a this is just another tool for me to make people smile because they're going to hear your podcast they're going to enjoy it if they listen to it and you've given me yet another way to make people smile. So thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. And, and I actually, I think this has been a really good episode. I give it a solid nine out of 10. <laughs> I'll take it. I will have <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> thank you for having me. And if you enjoyed this episode of Doing It For The Exposure and would like to hear more in the future, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-I-F-T-E Podcast. You can also check out our stream on nerdtoknowmedia.com. We stream weekly on Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening.
Thank you for listening to a Nerd to Know Media production.